Tonight's story on Mike and Mike Go to the Movies is somewhat unique and calls for a different kind of introduction. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the podcast disappeared and Mike and Mike Go to the Movies was left all alone. The Mikes were sure of one thing, the cause. A movie they covered on the podcast. A movie that moved the entire realm of podcasting back to the Dark Ages using only its mind. A movie so indebted to the Twilight Zone that you might think it were a lost episode, but it is not. This is Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. I'm Mike Smith. And joining me, as always, is a man from a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. Mike DiCrescio. How you doing, him? <laughs> I am not going to try a Rod Serling impression. I'm well. How are you? <laughs> I am good. I'm good. As you know, uh, I've been doing Rod Serling impressions for a long time. <laughs> yes, I was the star of one of your movies for a class where we all we did was spoof Twilight Zone episodes. Yes, yeah, we did a, a Twilight Zone spoof movie back in college, uh, where because Mike did a really good impression of the guy in the Twilight Zone. I think it's Burgess <laughs> Meredith who goes, uh, who is like, oh no, that was time now. That was there was, there was so much now. time now. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I made a whole short film centered around Mike trying to do that impression. Basically. <laughs> it was uh, great. Yes, it was a fun time. It's on YouTube somewhere. People can still watch it if they want to, if they want to try to find uh, maybe it. Maybe don't. Maybe don't say that part. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes, uh, we are back for another round of Guest Mike's Mike Scream, uh, the uh, weekly thing we've been doing all October long where we've had different guests make us watch different scary movies. Uh, this is the last one of the month, and joining us this week is a returning guest of the show, Laura Culinary. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. I'm so, so psyched to be here, and I did not know that thing. Uh, about the Twilight yes. Zone movie before I, I picked this movie. So I'm really, really happy about that because I don't know if I even gave you guys a heads up. Like, this is pure 60s Twilight Zone fun. So that makes me super happy. I, I think almost as soon as the movie starts and you hear the narration going, it's like, oh, it's just, it's the Twilight Zone. <laughs> 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 That's what they're doing. Um, but uh, yeah, what's been going on in your life, Laura? Yeah, I think it's been like a year since you've been on the podcast. I think it was the last time we were doing Guest Makes Mike Scream, which didn't have a name yeah. back then. <laughs> we figured that out now. Well, I love, I love the new branding, uh, first of all. Thank and you. yeah, now doing the usual thing, watching some scary movies, um, doing Latin American horror, working on a dissertation. My life has changed remarkably little in the past year. <laughs> Honestly, I, you'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You could, I'm just trying to maintain. I'm just trying to maintain. <laughs> yeah. Can't get any worse. <laughs> so you've been on twice before. You've made us watch uh, several movies in the past. You usually make us watch two movies. Uh, this week, you only made us watch one, uh, which I think we were grateful for because Mike and I have had a lot of stuff to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, but in the past, yes. In the and past, you've made us watch 90. a... It was a tight yes. 90. You're right. Yeah, an easy one to watch, too, which was great. Uh, you made us watch Alucarda, Daughter of Darkness, uh, back in the day, and also Even the Wind is Afraid, both of which were a lot of fun, especially Alucarda. I really love that one. And then I think it was last year you made us watch uh, Cold Sweat, uh, which ended up being like Mike D's favorite movie of all time, maybe? <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then what was, the, what was the other one you made us watch? It was Cold Sweat and something else. <laughs> At Midnight, uh, I'll Take Your Soul. Ah, yeah. yes, Coffin Joe. Yes, and that was... A really good time too. Uh, so this week, I mean, you, you've mostly outside of Cold Sweat, you've mostly been going for like older horror movies. Uh, this time around, you went for a more modern one too. I went for a modern one that really is just trying to be an old one, right? So pure sixties <laughs> yeah. aesthetic, pure sixties over the top, like like special effects and but like that aren't that good, but that are like purposely not very good. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm I'm keeping it I'm keeping it real. Absolutely. So uh, the movie we're talking about today 
is called uh, The Similars, a.k.a. Los Parecidos. Uh, I believe it goes by both titles. On Shudder, which is where it's available right now, uh, it is available as The Similars. Uh, so we're going to be getting into that movie in just a minute. First, got to tell people that all the theme songs that you're going to hear this episode uh, were created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own theme songs at kylespodcastthemes at gmail.com. Our logo was designed by Mac V, whose art you can find at Fearless Guard on Twitter. And if you ever want to contact us and respond to someone we did in the show, uh, you can tweet at us over at Mike and Mike Pod. And now it's time for a guest makes Mike scream. From the trailer for The Similars, aka Los Parecidos, written and directed by Isaac Esban, starring actors like Gustavo Sanchez Para, Cassandra Shangaroti. Messed that one up real bad. <laughs> I tried. Uh, Humberto Busto, Carmen Bieto, and several others. Uh, so, Laura, I always like to start these um, by asking people A, tell us about this movie, tell us how you came across this movie, and uh, why you felt like this is the one that you wanted to make us watch. Yeah, so I came across this movie just on Netflix. You know, and I almost always will check out any of the Latin American horror that they have Netflix on Netflix. And I and I think I watched it just years ago now for the first time. And I was like, this is just so much fun because I went through a phase where I was getting into the Twilight Zone, you know, like as an adult, those, all of those were on Netflix. So I was skipping around watching some of the fun episodes. Um, I had remembered watching, you know, a couple of them when I was a little bit younger and just like really enjoying it. And obviously the aesthetic is fun, a political commentary is like very very you know almost always very on the nose but in a way that is fun to do right because you're like oh okay you know this is interesting without being you know too pedagogical right it's not beating you over the head with it but it's still being worthwhile you know, the fear it's not just about the psychology um but it always is sort of about both right and so i really enjoyed that and then i actually ended up presenting a paper on this um in mexico at a conference um with a friend eduardo leo uh, um so we we both had really liked this movie and we thought it'd be really fun to write, write a paper on it together basically um and and just sort of like tease out some of the fun elements about you know it's a really historical film right so it's not just going for the 1960s aesthetic it's also dealing with the the questions of of societal pressures right it takes place in 1968 talking about the revolution it's talking about 
you know, left-wing students and these really repressive governments. And honestly, that's always something that's going to continue being relevant, uh, unfortunately, now, just as much as it was in, in the 60s. And so I was like, oh, you know, this is one of those ones that I really don't see talked about a lot, but I always really enjoyed. So I thought you guys would also get a big kick out of the Twilight Zone aesthetic, and, and I hoped it would be a lot of fun for you. Yeah, absolutely. Mike D., your general thoughts on The Similars. Yeah, I, I had uh, an absolute blast watching this movie, right down to, like you said, Mike, right at the beginning with the the uh, voiceover and like the kind of like slow reveal of this bus uh, bus station uh, in this like horrible downpour, and I was just like, oh yeah. Here we go. Like, <laughs> bunch bunch of strangers trapped in a room that they can't leave, and they all hate each other for some reason or have a reason to not like, get along. Uh, and then just uh, introduce this like slow paranoia creep, uh, this creepy kid, um, and then just everything about this movie was just like yes. Good, good, good. This is fun. This is exciting. I like this a lot. We're all, all five people are screaming at once and I don't know what's going on, but it's cool. And yeah, just, just the, I had a, a lot of fun. I watched this with a, for a, a few friends uh, in the discord I'm always talking about. And they were just like, how, how did you, why this movie? And I was like, well, my friend Laura, I don't know. We're going to see what, see what it's about. And uh, we had a, we all had a fun time watching it together. And um, I did want, I guess we'll get there in a little bit, but I do want to find out from Laura a little bit more about the historical context stuff because it ends on a very much like and then this major historical event happens and I didn't know what it was necessarily but I was like I'm ready for for Professor Laura to explain to us what is going on at the end of this movie and what <laughs> what they're all like obliquely referencing that right. this kid may have caused yes absolutely yeah and before we get to that I'll say that uh, yeah I also really enjoyed this movie I think it really creates a very fun atmosphere uh, right from the outset uh, you know it it very much is just the Twilight Zone. And I think that's the, yeah. like, I'm, and I'm such a huge Twilight Zone fan. I used to watch that all the time back when I was a kid, uh, you know, especially with the, uh, the New Year's Eve marathons or that kind of thing. They would just be on TV a lot. Uh, and so there are a few Twilight Zone episodes that I really love and uh, a few that are very, very famous. And uh, this one is kind of riffing on that kind of premise that is at the center of a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, which is just a bunch of strangers stuck together, un unknown reasons. Like, we don't really know what's going on. Uh, yeah. And then about halfway through, it turns out it's actually just like directly riffing on one very specific, very famous Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> which uh, I'm going to go ahead and spoil which episode that is, which will give away the twist of the movie. <laughs> Uh, but the, uh, the It's a Good Life episode of The Twilight Zone, which is about uh, the little kid with psychic powers who controls his entire town. Uh, and that ends up being j just the plot of this movie at the halfway point. Uh, and I found that to be really fun and the way it's indebted to uh, that kind of classic 60s TV uh, plus 50s sci-fi as well, kind of dating back to uh, the actual story that the kid is reading with the similars. Yeah, I found that whole aesthetic just so much fun and so interesting uh, and so cool. You know, it was something that was really interesting that I, it's like a, like a like subconscious thing I didn't even realize till it stopped doing this at the end of the movie where it begins in this like very color air quotes like muted really like washed out uh, yeah. color palette and then just becomes black and white at some point that I didn't realize it had and then at the end when it turns back turns back into like color and air quotes I was like wait a second what the like you realize <laughs> you've been tricked for 90 minutes basically uh, right <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it does it so gradually. And that's why I think the aesthetics of this, you know, it's not just, you know, it is like, obviously there's a reason it becomes black and white because it's, you know, entering into the conversation with this pilot song. It's so gradual that you don't even quite notice the difference until you're right, that shift back at the end. And that's completely of the plot, right? 
you know, it's, it's this yeah. sort of descent into madness where none of them realizes that they are changing or who's responsible for it until it's way too late. Um, and then all of a sudden when they're all, they think they're back to normal, you get this vision of the world in color. So we too are sort of back to normal. And so it's entering into this conversation using the throwback aesthetics to almost like make a point on nostalgia or something like that. You know, I feel like you could really, you know, it's not just like an unconscious like mimicking. It's like talking about yeah. what is it to do an homage and then to come back to the real world and to recognize like, oh, you know, it's, it wasn't just the good old days when the Twilight Zone was like so cool and fun and horror and sci-fi were just like classic, right? It's also like, oh, actually there was this descent into madness going on. You know, there's a lot of cultural, social, political turmoil going on that was that was reflected by these uh, these cinematic choices and and these plots but I, th- I think the real question laura is like when did horror become political you know like <laughs> <laughs> like why can't uh, we just have a fun movie that's all white men you know yeah. and like and some titties you know what this movie had plenty of titties true <laughs> they were all magazine titties though so. This is true. With the, and with the guy with the beard. Yeah, face. with the guy. <laughs> <laughs> and is yes. that not Which was one of my favorite I mean, things. A fun, fun. Okay, so obviously, like the whole parts of it. This is a hilarious movie because of exactly yes. those things. You know, you're seeing that. You're seeing the Beatles with the with that face. You're seeing all these like like cultural icons, right? And I think that's you know it moves again to this thing where like a lot of horror movies do, where it's like oh, like the the breasts are for titillation, the female body is for titillation, right? There's no actual female bodies that are for titillation there you know none of the characters are put into that situation right it's a very you know 60s like 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 that that's not something that they would do right that would be beyond the pale Mm -hmm. but you know you can like see their flesh off but you can't like show tits right but the fact that they show it in the (laughs) magazine and then they turn it on its head so it's actually the opposite it's like totally grotesque is is a lot of fun right without actually being exploitative in the same way that some of those films that do the same thing are still sort of inherently exploitative but yeah but i think that is one of the uh the fun things about this too kind of the far-reaching implications of what this is what's happening in the movie you know because you have this uh, this thing that's starting to slowly creep in and it almost seems like it's a uh, a story about a disease that's spreading at first uh, uh where it's like these all these people have their faces that are changing and they eventually realize that they're all changing into the form of ulysses who is kind of the guy you're first introduced to in the movie and it seems like it could just be happening to this group of eight people, you know, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. at, at first. Uh, and then when you see all those historical figures, all of the, all these image, all this imagery of different people like the Beatles, like Marilyn Monroe, all with this guy's face on it. It's like, oh, this is not just happening to these eight people. This has happened to everyone living or dead <laughs> in, in the history of the world. And so in addition to kind of doing uh, what you were saying, Laura, I think it also kind of helps further establish uh, the actual threat that's being posed in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, also that guy's name being Ulysses, he's always being tied to a pillar. That's got to be something, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> as far as my hashtag analysis will get to that. <laughs> hashtag analysis. It's, it's been a few years since you got that English major. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Um, I think my favorite reveal as far as the like faces that have been replaced thing is like the Sean Connery, James Bond uh, yes. poster. <laughs> That was pretty I don't fun. know why I don't know why that one in particular felt so horrific. Uh, <laughs> 
but it did. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's kind of the fun thing, too, is the movie has this fairly dark premise, but has fun with it as well and kind of does some interesting stuff uh, in that regard. And then you're kind of seeing how this is affecting all these different people. And it's really a body horror movie of like, you know, if is your body, what your body is changing to. Uh, and really like, it's a relatively like harmless thing that's happening to their bodies. Um, but it's, they're also like freaked out because something is changing about their body and they have no control over it. You know? Yeah. Right. Uh, so it, it's, it's very different than something like, you know, the fly or whatever, where it's like, well, the body is clearly like deteriorating and dying. And so this is bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, for, uh, potentially just like superficial, like, you know, reasons of, you know, looks and glamour and everything, uh, you know, the female characters obviously have a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that now they now look like this dude, you know, and then all the yeah. male characters also have to deal with that too. And, uh, yeah, it's, it gets pretty intense, uh, especially around the halfway point when everybody starts turning. That's such a good point too, because it's not like, this isn't actually an existential threat, theoretically, right? You're going to continue right. living after this happens. And what the, the, thing that actually becomes threatening for them like some of the most at the threatening things is their reactions to it right you've got the creepy lady in the bathroom the creepy bathroom attendant who's creepy far before she gets turned into uh you yeah. know, yes. some, a, a person with the head of some other guy um and so she is so horrified by it that first she locks herself away and then she like flashes her face open with a mirror right the and the other things is the reactions of you know as soon as the guy gets the gun out because he thinks that this guy is like just a fucking devil like the the ticket <laughs> The yeah. ticket attendant is like, the only explanation I have for this and for what I have seen in the office is that this man who I am starting to resemble is literally the devil, you know? And so he's looking at him being like, okay, well, I've, 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 and why would you get a shotgun to threaten the devil? Uh, very unclear, right? As if that's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like introducing a gun to the situation is actually not going to solve anything. But he introduces the gun. And like from then on, my main source of anxiety in those subsequent scenes are watching the gun change hands and seeing who's holding it and who's pointing it at who. Because you're like, stop aiming this gun at this pregnant lady. You know, like that's actually where a lot of the anxiety comes in is more about this sudden existential threat than the, the change to their face at all. Because by that point, we're like, oh, we know that they're not dying. Right. Like they're changing appearance. Right. Um, and it's obviously, you know, it's very troubling to people because they're losing this sort of emblematic part of their identity. But, um, you know, we've also seen, you know, that there's a lot of there's a, there's a couple of appearances of them in mirrors them sort of like looking at themselves and things like that to, to think through like how they think of themselves. Uh, you know, they you could get through this without dying, and yet, like their world devolves into <laughs> chaos, and the whole hear through like the announcements on the radio that the whole rest of the world devolves into chaos as well. Yes, and I do love there's like hints of that towards the beginning of the movie too. I think especially uh, with Ulysses' character, uh, you know, he's stuck in the bus depot during the storm while his wife is giving birth in Mexico City, and you know, he's trying to get through to his father-in-law who's who's there, and he's trying to give him updates. Uh, and on the phone with his father-in-law, he's like, "Oh, you're you're a father. Uh, your wife gave birth to twins." They both look exactly like you, but some, something's weird. Yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of the first hint of like what's what's about to happen, what's going to go down. Um, you know, and at first you're like, well, you know, they're his kids. Like, sure, they look like look like <laughs> him, but you uh, don't hear the rest of the father-in-law's sentence where I presume it's like they have full beards. <laughs> like, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so that's where it's, and I think, I mean, one of the most horrifying images is obviously the baby that comes out. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, it, like kicking, screaming, you know, with the umbilical cord and covered in blood, obviously. And they do the close up on it. Oh, and, the, and then the dog that has the beard. That's also the most terrifying yeah. thing. <laughs> 
like, that was such gone. a nice the nice uh, uh invasion of the body snatchers like yes reference yes. moment i was like it's the thing yeah. with the dog with the face yeah <laughs> Yes, to catch Mike, I didn't catch that, and that's—I uh, feel like we should have. That's that's a movie we covered for the Goldblum podcast yes. back in the day. Uh, yeah, I love that, and uh, you know, so the movie—I mean, so all of this is happening because of this little kid, which you find out about halfway through the movie. He's in the bus station. He's there with his mom, who has some kind of you know drug that calms him down, that like keeps him from doing these things. But he didn't get the drug, and now he's just going crazy with this uh, idea that was kind of planted into his head from a young kid, uh, or when he was even younger, where his mom used to read him this like sci-fi story called The Similars about these like aliens that came down and turned everybody into identical beings, but that nobody knew about it. And so now he's essentially doing that. Uh, just in in real life. And I, I think what's cool, I, I completely lost my train of thought about where I was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's really about how media influences young men to cause violence. No, I don't know. It seems, uh, seems like it would fit. <laughs> No, but I think it's interesting the way, uh, you know, it's it's sort of talking about the way art affects us in certain ways uh, and the way that this story really impacted this kid and is trying, he's trying to kind of create an actual world within it. And it, to him, it's just a game. To him, it's just like a fun time to kill people randomly because he's so like evolved past them. He like barely kind of registers them as human. Uh, and I think the way that kid is portrayed and the way it really does riff on that Twilight Zone episode, it creates this very creepy uh, atmosphere around the kid and uh, the, the way the kid is just like laughing at everybody as, you know, the most horrific things that have ever happened in their lives are, <laughs> yeah. are happening uh, to them in the in the bus station is is pretty creepy. It's it's pretty terrifying. Oh, yeah. He sucks. It's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's incredibly, you know, annoying in certain ways, obviously, because he's just sort of like periodically getting mad and screaming. Right. And that sort of thing. And he's got but the but also the actor who played him. I mean, he's a little kid. Right. He did really good. Like he's very creepy, yeah. very annoying. You hate him. His his facial expressions and sort of like the wide eyes and the gleeful, like vicious smile, those are incredibly, incredibly good. Um, and, and another thing that's kind of like funny that we haven't mentioned is there's also an older indigenous woman who does not speak Spanish who's in the bus depot. And so she right. is some sort of medicine woman, right? She's got a pouch with, with, with certain things in it. And she starts freaking out from the beginning. Like she knows and sees that something is going on, but she cannot communicate it to them because she doesn't speak Spanish. And so everyone keeps ignoring her. Like they all like at, at some point, like sometimes you're like, oh, she's kind of scary. Right. But it turns out like mm -hmm. all along that she's, she identifies like where the problem is very early. She notices the, she notices the issue with Ulysses before anybody else, because she sort of starts like yelling at him and like trying to do some stuff around him, like as soon as she sees. And so even before we get the reveal that like also Ulysses face was changed, and he didn't realize right um and nobody else realized because they had not seen him before that moment you can probably presume that the indigenous woman maybe had actually seen him because she was in the bus depot with him um and so maybe she saw what he looked like before and then only saw like and saw his transformation afterwards and got very you know was trying to like figure out what the hell's going on but um <laughs> right her and Irene the pregnant woman are the only ones who are like semi-reasonable and they both just get completely yeah. ignored in favor of one yeah. I mean the other person who I really really hate is the student whose politics obviously you know I'm gonna be you know in in favor of you know school students but insufferable 
right? Just an insufferable, yeah. <laughs> pedantic asshole, like immediately coming in like, oh, what drug are you giving your child? You shouldn't be giving your child drugs. And like, you know, and immediately starts like, like trying to like guess that everybody is like a government psyop, like that they're trying that they're doing some <laughs> sort of experimental government control device or something like that. He is completely unreasonable, but also the person who most tries to take charge of the situation, which sucks. Right. Um, yes. And and instead, the two reasonable people get ignored. One because they're a pregnant woman, and two because they're an indigenous woman who nobody understands. Right. Um, so right. that is like a huge source of frustration where you're watching them like sort of have an idea of going on. And Irene like says like five times, she's like, "You guys have to go look at these magazines in the office, which show yes. that something more <laughs> is going on. That show that the magazines have changed. That it's not just their face." their faces so it can't be a virus it can't be some government thing limited to the bus depot and they just like ignore her five times <laughs> until finally she gets them out there but by then it's too late yeah absolutely i think it's, the movie is also saying a lot i think about perspective and about the way like a, a certain point of view can change you know how you look at something and i think specifically with the twist around ulysses there where it turns out that's not actually his face either that uh you know he looked different before the, the events of the movie but uh, he didn't realize that his face changed because the kid didn't allow him to notice that his face changed essentially. And so everybody else sees it. Everybody sees that everybody is turning into the face that he has, but it's not actually his face, but he doesn't know that. So he's freaking out like, why is everybody like, you know, pointing at me? I didn't do anything. <laughs> and I think the way the uh, the kid plays around with that and, uh, you know, I think going into the indigenous woman and stuff, I think having her uh, there as a point of view character and like knowing everything from the beginning is also speaking to that too. Yeah, and it's really yeah, interesting. It almost... Sorry, go ahead, Mike. You're going to have a better point than Mike, me. Mike, it's ahead. your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to do a throwback to what Mike Mike said earlier about, um, you know, sort of the way that this kid has such a higher is operating on a psychic plane that's so much so beyond us, right, that it's like he's looking at us like ants. There's actually a per particular line that's really, really fun. And I think gets to the existential yeah. threat, which is that ends in the book, look at a group of humans and see them all looking exactly the same, just like we would look at a group of ants and we don't see an individuality from ant to ant, right? So there's the idea that right. like, yes, they all look the same to us because we're quote unquote higher beings, right? Or we're beyond understanding them on an individual level. They're only a collective to us. So the aliens look at us that way. And that kid looks at us that way because he's more in line with the, <laughs> with the aliens, right? And so it's, you know, talking about perspective, it really is, again, you know, this sort of like zoom out tiny dot in the universe that the Twilight Zone loves to do to make you thinking sure. about like, wh who, where do we fit into this cosmos as human beings, right? Into these sort of multiple dimensions of existence. Yeah, absolutely. Mike D, what were you going to say? Uh, well, I I like that thought because if you, if you apply the 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 kid as like a kind of status quo or control thing like you know you zoom out to like the e economy or whatever like we're all just cogs it doesn't matter who we are kind of thing if to add into like the twilight zone multiple layers of everything situation um but i was going to say before that the indigenous woman is almost set up as like the kind of you know hinted at maybe in the very beginning like potentially the cause of whatever's going on. I don't think it like explicitly hints at that, but just this like other person who's speaking a language nobody understands. She's putting like the sand or beads or whatever she's putting on the on the ground and like doing these like little rituals by herself in the corner. Uh and it's just like 
as a as a you know as a character that doesn't fit in with the rest of them they all kind of like side eye side eye her a little bit until right. everything you know kind of kicks off and we realize it's not that and that she's actually helping and she knows what's going on maybe and it could you know that whole thing that we were just talking about before um but yeah i liked i like how the, the, we kind of get a little fake out there well, yeah yes, we do absolutely. we get a fun like twist and turn and, and the other thing that's interesting about each of these characters is they're all like occupying societal type right you know they're they're not yes. super deep but they're all pretty unique you know there's nobody existing it's not like there's two or three students you know there's one for each group that we're representing here and you're right that we've got the indigenous woman who who at the very beginning like they've got like the the stings with like the music when she's sort of mm-hmm. showing up up and getting a piece so that you do from the beginning think like oh she's kind of scary right so so they're faking you out really well by using those expectations and using those expectations about like what's bound to happen and even like the creepy bathroom attendant you're like maybe it's the bathroom attendant doing stuff she's being really weird about petting this woman's belly and like not letting her like leave the bathroom or something like she was being really creepy for a minute like who knows like you feel like the threat could be coming from all sides from the very beginning except and the and the woman with her son because she is like this like wealthy put together woman even though she's got like the you know the, the creepy part of it you know you're sort of like oh something's going on with that kid right but you feel like maybe mm-hmm. he's right. a victim of her or something like that so you sort of suspect everybody except for the little kid until the exact moment when the movie wants you to be suspecting the little kid yes absolutely and the way it kind of changes perspective on that again too where it kind of just like has uh, Ulysses tied up and you finally like kind of the kid kind of reveals himself and the camera just kind of it just kind of like moves around him and switches. Uh, it's really, really terrific. Also, just wanted to give a shout out to the fact that uh, the uh, the guy who works at the bus station was like three days from retirement. You know, he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that they threw that line in there. It's like, oh, man, he, he was so close. <laughs> just missed. He was so close to getting out of all this life. Yes. Uh, so terrific. And Mike, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but uh, the movie does kind of use an actual historical event as sort of a backdrop or that it's alluding to kind of throughout it's it's sort of the lead up to this event and it's uh, really like mike something that i really didn't know too much about laura i'm guessing you might have more information on this but it's uh the uh, you're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation of this town the tlatelolco massacre is that right yeah yeah so tlatelolco is a place in mexico city it's a particular plaza that's really important and that uh, basically the reason it's, it's being referenced throughout this is it's taking place the you know right the evening before like the the early morning hours before a really famous day in mexican history, which is there was a really large student protest happening. In particular, it was because they were protesting having the 1968 Olympics in Mexico. And a lot of these protests are sort of about the same things, right? There's a lack of social funding going to things that people need. Right. Um, that's what, what it all sort, almost always sort of boils down to. But also 1968, 1969 globally, you know, in Mexico, but everywhere, it's all about the student protests. Right. And student yeah. activism around these sorts of things. Right. And so that um, event was met. And, and you can see sort of in the way that they talk about it throughout. Um, they're calling the students agitators. They're sort of accusing them of, of oh, you're trying to um, go, you know, disrupt our lives and you guys are you know good for nothing who are going to try and make you know problems for everybody and you're going to riot and you're going to do this and that 
sounds familiar, right? Um, and so right. what actually happened? And the, and the student in the movie is going to the protest. That's where he's stuck in the bus to go, and he's like right. trying to make it over there, right? Right, right. He's on his way um, to to the to the meeting in the square. And so what happened on that day was the Mexican government really violently repressed those students, and a lot of people died. They they killed a ton of students. Um, I think the numbers are actually. Um, unclear, but I think, so there was like 10,000 university and high school students in the square and the number of people who were um, killed is a little bit unclear, but at least like a few dozen and then they arrested like over a thousand. I actually have, um, I have a poster right now, but it's actually not about Satelolco, but it's around the same time period as a protest poster talking about um, basically the very repressive government measures that they had going on that were against the political protests and things like that. Long story short, so the the media and the Mexican government were really against the, the protesters and blamed the students for being shot and arrested, basically. Um, <laughs> so they said that, so they said that, oh, you know, like this, the, the armed forces, and it was the army that did it, not the, not the regular horrible cops, but the army horrible cops. Um, and they said that they were provoked. They said that, you know, some people said that like they, you know, the students shot them. There has been some evidence to indicate that it was like a false flag. If I hate using that, that term because it's used by the right way. But there is some indication that um, it was actually that um, uh, the government forces like planted people or, or like planted snipers to like start shooting to like use it as an excuse for the repression. And a lot of like the information about this was was censored afterwards as well. There is a movie from 1989 called Red Dawn, uh, Rojo Amanecer, that talks about it. Hodorowski had a massacre in it that was a reference to that um, in the, the Holy Mountain. And, you know, it, it's all over the place um, in terms of, of the media. Elena Poniatowska, who is a really important writer, also also wrote about it. And they, and they went, you know, a lot of these writers, they went and they had to um, do their own interviews um, investigating this, basically, and doing investigative journalism around it because a lot of the actual information was repressed so that they could blame the students. Um, and you can see here, you know, the way that it's relevant to the movie is, you know, not just context, right, but it's also talking about how you learn to forget things, right, and how the narrative changes because, you know, the thing you know, they're talking about Sakaloko, the whole film. And then towards the end, you really clearly get the idea, you know, the kid and his mother have gotten the bus. They are on a way to a doctor, which is at the plaza. Um, he's going to be there and he has a book called Massacre in the Plaza. And so it's very clear that they're setting up for the fact that the same thing which has just happened, which is that he he reacted out the plot of a book he was familiar with, is about to happen. And I actually have like some like like let's let's see what you guys have to say about this because on a political level, like on the one hand, you're sort of like you don't want to excuse the fact that this happened and it was the government's fault by saying a little psychic kid did it, you know, by implying <laughs> that, right? But yeah, obviously yeah, it's also sure. met as an allegory, you know? So like the actions in the bus depot, you know, it's never, a lot of it, it's not just the kid's fault, right? It's the way that they reacted to the kid and, and to the situation that showed where all of these sectors of society were at fault for feeding into their own prejudices and biases instead of thinking rationally and for blaming one another. And I think that's part of the same thing, the sort of message about 
the the Tlatelolco massacre is that part of the issue there is like the government can get away with stuff when like you are blaming the victims of repression. You know, that's what we see in, in protests going on here. You know, you're blaming black people for being shot by the police. You know, there is a huge media presence and a huge culture that is seeking to blame the victims of violence. Right. And so I think that's really the message that you want to take away from that. That is, you know, that that's sort of the the metaphor going on here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think the the movie does uh, at the end. I mean, obviously, it implies that he is at least partially responsible for uh, the massacre and also potentially po- responsible for every disaster going forward. Um, I think there's like history. a book about like, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah. look, earthquakes. I can do, I can yeah. do that. Yeah. Tsunamis. Yeah, tsunamis. I was there. expecting like 9-11 like, coming up or something. Like I was like, it just felt like it was like going in that direction. Yeah, so there, well, and there was in the late 60s, early 70s, actually a really terrible earthquake um, that affected, affected Mexico and a particularly terrible tidal wave that also affected Mexico, right? And then the final book that's mm. there is just a wink and a nod from the author because it's called El Inciente, which is the name of the movie that he made um, before this one, um, which is a lot of fun. Oh, nice. That's fun. <laughs> so that's not a historical that's cool. reference. That's, cool. that's his own inner, you know, self, self-referential there. Nice. This kid caused so many disasters, including my last movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Ignacio Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think the ending really does work. I think the me- the message may be a little muddled by the idea that, like, you know, the kid did it as opposed to the government. But I think you're right that the way if you're kind of taking it within the context of the movie and kind of thinking about like the fact that they put this historical backdrop behind it, like it's kind of obviously like I, I didn't really know much about this event at all going into the movie. But like as soon as it started, I could feel I felt like this seems like it's alluding to something that actually happened in real life, you know, <laughs> like this feels yeah. like an actual thing, uh, which I think actually would make it a really interesting double feature with, uh, I think it was Cold Sweat, uh, which also uses, I believe, a massacre as like backstory, like a real life mass- massacre as backstory for one of the characters. Am I right about that? Yeah, it uses um, the reference to the, um, both the, both of the serial killers in it were part of these paramilitary death squads. And so right. you can see a theme in, in the movies that I'm interested in, but, <laughs> I, but particularly the thing I'm into, so we don't have this in Cold Sweat where it's like a supernatural element, but it's sort of like very like why are we we're using these horror tropes to talk about these real life tragedies like political events like that involve violence on like a really horrific scale and I guess let's bring up 9-11 again can you imagine like like exactly (laughs) what would it mean for us to have a horror movie that's talking about 9-11 in such a way right like that's sort of like the the horrifying level that or like Kent State right what if we had a a uh, horror movie that's talking about the Kent State protests and and attributing some sort of supernatural cause to those, right? Like, what are why? What is that saying about how we're trying to work through this cultural trauma? Right. I think we have that 9/11 movie, and it's called uh, "Remember Me" with Robert Pattinson. <laughs> do you guys? Do you guys remember that one? <laughs> yeah. That right at the end, it's like a whole regular <laughs> romance, and then at the end, it just turns out he dies in 9/11. <laughs> yeah, that's the twist at the end of the movie. <laughs> I. I genuinely can't imagine a like an American cultural. Uh, I don't know how to phrase this. A, a way in which American culture could like reflect itself that much. Like we couldn't. I can't imagine an American movie about strangers at a bus stop that it turns out that kid gets on a flight to nine eleven. Like <laughs> causes nine eleven. Like I can't. I, I don't understand. I don't. I, this is fascinating to think about it in this point of view. Like, I, 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 do, I do think it would. I think it would be a bad movie. <laughs> Yeah, like I can't, like I, and it would be like 
like the worst, like the most offensive thing that's ever existed. Somehow. Right. So, uh, you know what I mean? So, like, you know, maybe in the sci-fi track, but like maybe. got um, all the references to JFK in the Umbrella Academy. There's that. Uh, I yeah. think conspiracies okay. do sure. better with this, right? But so, so that movie would yes. be a Bush did 9/11 movie. <laughs> 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 Just open the Playboy, and it's all George Bush's face. <laughs> I mean, I, Oliver Stone's got to be working on something, right? That's. Yeah. The, that's <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh yeah no i think maybe uh 9-11 is still a little too recent to do anything like that with um but i think jfk is something that you have seen a lot obviously oliver stone had the jfk movie uh and that's something that is used in fiction a lot i mean it, there's a do you remember in x-men days of future past it's referenced yes. that magneto killed uh jfk Ooh, or because he's right. a mutant yes oh like, you know we- that's why it's a magic bullet because he can <laughs> Stephen King had a whole book on that. Stephen King had a whole, right? Somebody goes back in time to try to prevent right. the day. 11, 12, 63, yeah. right? Yeah. I watched yes. like the first half of a season of that and then I lost interest. But when they did the adaptation. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, you know, so I think you're right. I think that, you know, this is, yeah, you know, going back a little bit, maybe definitely the sci-fi elements, but like that's, off, it's often a time travel thing. It's often about trying to prevent these horrible things from happening instead of sort of like accepting, you know, Americans are terrible at one, knowing history exists um, yeah, or yes, two. Sure accepting the ways that things went down and that we can't do anything to change it because that would mean we'd have to actually do something in our current present instead of, you know, entertaining these fantasies. Also, the only thing we're allowed to talk about with 9-11 is, and and like, you know, is they're all, you know, they're action movies, right? It's like post 9-11, kick the terrorist asses movies. You know, there's no, you know, it's not like this is a particularly nuanced horror movie, but um, (laughs) I don't think, I think horror would require a little bit more nuance. Um, than than a lot of the action movie glorification that happens around sort of what our American tragedies are. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I, I love the way this uh, kind of uses it as sort of a backdrop. It's a plot point, but not the necessarily the entirety of the film. And it does, I think, help to evoke The Twilight Zone, which is also an incredibly socially conscious TV show uh, that was dealing with uh, both current and historical events at the time, but done through allegory and parallels. And so to kind of go back to uh, this movie's connection to that show and uh, the fact that it was like, even if you just like, go to the Wikipedia page on this movie, like the first sentence, is like writer, director, Isaac Esbon was influenced by the twilight. Zone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Oh no shit. He <laughs> really, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think that that element of it kind of helps to evoke Twilight Zone. Also, the fact that it's like it's muted colors slash black and white uh, kind of helps bring that to it. I think even just the way it's filmed makes it look like it is a Twilight Zone episode. I think the fact that this is a movie that uh, pretty much takes place entirely in one location and it's a very big, spacious location. It's a movie that uh, really understands the spatial geography of uh, what it's doing. Uh, and it kind of introduces you to every single element of that bus station. And like you kind of know where everything is very very easily. It's a very distinctive look. Yeah, I think all that stuff kind of comes together to make it look like the Twilight Zone. <laughs> wow, it's so fun because it's claustrophobic, you know, and yet sort of like vast, yeah. this sort of long hallway that they go down to where the bathrooms and the back office are. And then, um, you know, it's so funny. I actually really like this sort of like, cla- like 
you know, one, like it's great for horror because it's cheap as hell. You've got one freaking set, like two sets if you count the bathroom as yeah, a separate one, right? right? Um, and the office is a separate one, you know, three or four sets. It's really, you don't have to do that much. But then, um, you know, so I like that a lot, but it really does make you get creative, right? With the camera work, with the focus on the setting. And even like, you feel like you're there. There's something about, and, and that's the, the po- point at which I always remember it's gradually getting black and white. And I'm always like, wait, weren't those bus chairs blue? you know the chairs in the waiting area and I feel like I can imagine sitting in those chairs Um, and obviously the other thing is that the 60s aesthetic is just so so iconic you know just the shape of the coke machine right is like really really gets through to you right Um, so it it feels like a very tangible location where they are yeah absolutely any uh, any scenes in the movie that you guys want to uh, highlight anything that uh, sticks out to you is like man that was like a memorable scene in the similars Um, there's one thing actually I forgot I wanted to mention too uh, about the student as much as an annoying asshole as he is um that i just finished listening to uh behind the bastards podcast just did a whole series on mk ultra which you know is the cia tried to create mind control through lsd so it's very funny that immediately the students like what kind of hallucinogenic mind control bullshit is this? And you're like, you're right. Technically, you were right. You were so close that's all along. That's really, really um, fair. Because that's the other thing. It's like, why are you so paranoid and like and into these conspiracies? Because they were fucking real, man. Yeah. Like, they were so real. Like, you're right. You're right. Also, you're annoying. But you're right. But you're right. Put down the shotgun. Put down the shotgun. Um, you, can't, you can't shoot it your way out of see. this situation. Right. No. Let's see. What moment stood out to me? I mean, the the literal the moment that's probably I guess the most shocking would be the baby, but the second uh, the most surprising would be when the car just drives through the wall. <laughs> the towards the end. That was that was pretty great. And the way I kind of telegraphed that right beforehand, where the kid is playing with the toys and he just like pushes the car. Uh terrific. So good. <laughs> Because, you know, because by this point, that's the other thing. Like, by this point, you've forgotten about the fact that we have another off, we have an off-screen character, which is Irene's husband, who has sort of been, like, looming. You're like, oh, right, he's going to come after her. That's why she wants to get out of this bus station so badly, right? She's running away from an abusive husband. She's trying to get to Mexico City to her family. And she's sort of like, he's probably going to come after me. Like, I really want to go, you know? So everybody's got a sense of urgency. Everybody's got something that's propelling them out of that bus station, but they can make no progress and then first all of a sudden this giant thing to be coming flying into the place where they have been trying to get out of is like totally random but completely telegraphed from the very beginning everything that happens in the movie 90 minutes there is not a single wasted second because everything yeah. that happens has been hinted at at least two or three times before it actually comes to play yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I also want to mention, I think I mentioned the scene earlier, but the scene where Ulysses is tied up and Ignacio kind of reveals himself. And I think the the sequences leading up, like, or right after that, really, uh, where Ignacio uh, kind of gives Ulysses the deal uh, of like, hey, I'll let you get out of here if you, you know, kill that guy uh, <laughs> or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't want to do it, but he's like, you know, he's like, well, the kid's going to let me out of here. I don't know. And so <laughs> the, uh, the kind of going back and forth, like at some point, I feel like every single character in this movie holds the shotgun at some point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it has like yeah. turned on, turned against everybody else. Um, but I think the uh, the kind of moral quandary that uh, Ulysses finds himself in, where he just really wants to get to Mexico City, see his wife, see the twin babies, and you know all that kind of stuff. Like see, like you know, meet his kids for the first time. Uh, and he's trying to get out of there. Uh, and now he's, uh, uh, you know, he feels guilty for not being there. He was trying to make it out. I think he works at a coal mine or something. He was working uh, and was trying to get there and can't. And now this kid's kind of giving him a way out, but he has to kill somebody in order to do it. You know, I, I love what the uh, the kind of wheels that start turning in Ulysses' head 
uh, when he has to go through with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I really like how how once it's revealed, which <clears throat> maybe my one complaint, I don't know if I have really necessarily have a complaint, but the, the mother reveals in the bathroom that, like, it's her kid. And then we go outside and Ignacio, like, explains what's going on. We read the comic book, all that stuff. But then the student and Irene are not there, and they spend a long time catching up to information we already know. That's true. They're just like, all right. Okay, maybe maybe this could have been eighty five minutes, you know. That's true. <laughs> no, I don't. That's true. Um, <laughs> but that that moment where, but I, once it flips and like it's like fully revealed that Ignacio just goes like full villain, just like amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Laura, any scenes that stood out to you? Anything you want to highlight before we start wrapping Again, this up? Yeah, like it's all like almost about images for me. Um, you know, the one thing I wanted to mention is Mike texted me right when you were watching this, I think, Mike D did, that Irene is played by Cassandra Changarotti, who is um, in Los Espookies, which yes. is another thing oh, that you nice. should absolutely watch. Yeah. And I had I had not made that connection either because I had watched this movie so long ago and I hadn't watched Los Espookies until earlier this year, actually, or maybe last year or something like that. And I hadn't like the the distance between them was so much that I hadn't made the connection. But then like watching it again, I was like, oh yeah, there's a reason. Her affect, her mannerisms are really so fun to watch. I think she's she's really pretty brilliant. Um, and she's the one who gets sort of like probably the most screen time without being obscured by like the beard and like the <laughs> right, <laughs> like, yeah, this sort of prosthetics that they have on. So so that's that's pretty notable. And it's yeah. it's fun too. This feels like something they would do in Losa Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that I was like, this is a fun, weird meta thing that's going on in my brain right now. I feel like I'm watching a skit they're doing in Lissa's Pukies. Um, and yeah, the prosthetics too are incredible. Like everybody looks amazing once they've transformed into Ulysses. Uh, yeah, I, I was sort of half expecting like the same actor to play all the characters at a certain point. Um, but instead yeah. they have like the, you know, the actual individual actors just with prosthetics over their face. Uh, and I, I was picturing the conversation between the director and the actor playing Ulysses and being like, so here's the thing. What this movie about is what if the most horrifying thing that could happen to somebody was if they had your face? <laughs> what if they looked like you and they were freezed out of <laughs> And it ruined their lives. I also really like, you're right, that the first prosthetics are, are good, except for like, because it's on people, that all the bodies are too small for the head. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so it does. It still looks weird it, it, the whole time, right? And then they have Irene is the only one. It makes this like uncanny valley right? thing. She's the only one who's half transformed for a little while. Like she's the only one who's got like half of her hair has changed and the other half is normal. Yeah. And that's like just because they actually like draw that one out. For I'm like, okay, based on what we know about the transformation time, that doesn't make any sense. But it is very funny. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then uh, the movie ends with uh, most of them dead. Uh, the mom and the kids survive. And I, I believe the student gets arrested. Uh, no metaphor. I think it's just the indigenous woman that's left. Yeah. And, and that's the, the horror for her is that she is the only one who knows what has happened and cannot do anything about it. Right. Right. Everybody else. Yeah, because no, no, nobody, yeah, nobody knows what's happened here. Nobody remembers uh, except for her, the mom, and the kid, basically. But everybody else still has the face, 
right? Um, but like because of the, the perspective the kid did or the aliens or whatever it was, nobody knows that. And so everybody's individuality has been stripped from them, but nobody's aware of it. Right. And so you have a couple of really fun. Yeah. I actually really love the scenes at the end where you're sort of switching back between these perspectives, right? So for a minute, you're seeing everybody look normal. And then there's sort of like, I think there's actually like a pan or something like that, or like something obscures the camera as it pans. And then all of a sudden, everybody is looks exactly the same. And then they they all get on the bus and the same thing happens. You know, like the kid is seeing everybody looking identical, but the mother is seeing everybody look normal, basically. Um, and so she knows something horrible has happened, but they don't even interview her because they're just like, why would we need to interview her? We've got this student. We know he's got a bunch of weed on him. So we know that he, you know, probably like did drugs and went crazy and killed a bunch of people. You know, like it's always a foregone conclusion. And the poor indigenous woman is like, I can't explain to anybody what has happened, but she's desperately begging the mother just not to bring him to the square because there's going to be 10,000 people and something horrible could happen. And yep. she just like blows her off because because again you know there's just like this idea that like that woman like does not care right she doesn't care she's like well you promised you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. do this it's like you, you, what you think your child your psychic child isn't gonna <laughs> who doesn't comprehend the problem is not going to be doing this again. Yeah, she seems to care to a degree, but not so much that like it's going to she's going to inconvenience her child in any way. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> herself. Right. Or herself, really. But like when, you know, when she's explaining to them like what the kid is doing earlier in the movie and she's like, oh, my God, he's doing this. I know it. I'm sorry. Like all that kind of stuff. She's like she's horrified along with them. But then at the end, she goes along with it. She, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she just keeps on moving. Right. She's happy to let other people take the blame. She's happy to like sort of be like, yeah, the student makes a good scapegoat for her because, you know, like who's who you going to believe in there? Like the rich, like posh lady or like this dirtbag looking student, you know, <laughs> with his with his marijuana. <laughs> his marijuana. Right, exactly. Uh, absolutely. And that is uh, Los Perecidos, a.k.a. The Similars, uh, which is streaming right now on Shutter. Uh, and I think definitely worth checking out. I think we're all big fans of the movie here. So, uh, Laura, thank you so much for making us watch this movie. This is a great choice. Thanks for bringing me on. I, I love uh, when you guys enjoy the movie. Yes. I mean, so so far, I don't think you have you have like a bad record by any means. You know? <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think they've all been pretty much hits for the most part, I want to say. So you're doing great, Laura. We really appreciate it. Um, but I people- also, uh, I want to shout out, sorry, the poster for this movie is probably one of the coolest like art pieces ever oh yes yeah that, that is a really cool yeah absolutely which is kind of based on the comic book that the kid is reading right the, the similar yeah comic. and the tagline of like seven billion people on earth dot 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 or only one you're like yeah <laughs> this is the coolest <laughs> nice anyway, all right sorry. So, so laura if people want to find you online this week uh, where can they do that they can find me at laura underscore culinary which you're going to have to look up how to spell that. It's hard. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) On Twitter. If you go through like, yes, on Twitter, if you go through like the Mike and Mike pod followers, you'll probably find her at some point. Google me. You're (laughs) going to find me. You're going to find me. Yeah, there you go. Mike D, where can we find you online this week? You can find me at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. And if you'd like to donate to support the show, you could do that at our Kofi page, which is Kofi.com slash Mike and Mike Pods, plural, because we have two podcasts. Yes, we do. You can find me online at uh, M Smith Film Blog on Twitter, Mike Smith Film on Letterboxd, Radio Mike Sandwich on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to Mike Mike Go to the Movies. I'm Mike Smith. That's Mike DeCrecio, and that is Laura Culinary. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, you can tweet at us at Mike and Mike Pod. Uh, you can find the Rest of our podcast on Rapture Press, alongside many other podcasts, but all kinds of comic books and movie news and all that good stuff. And next week, it's Mike DeCrecio's birthday, sort of. 
sort of, a month <laughs> <Yeah>. ago. <laughs> it was Mike's birthday a month ago, but we delayed his birthday because we were doing this Guest Makes Mike Scream series. Yes. Uh, and so our birthday bylaw is coming up. Next week, you're going to make me watch something, Mike. What's it going to be? I think we're going to go with uh, the Martial Law movies that we have the Vinegar Syndrome box set. We'll say at least the first one, Martial Law 1, if okay. we have time. Martial law to you because I know you were both busy people. We are we are both busy people. That's why Laura only picked one movie this time around. Yes, <laughs> and then Mike D's gonna turn around and make us watch two movies. Twist, <laughs> twist. Uh, yeah. So yeah, next week we're at least talking the original Martial Law, which uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out this great Blu-ray uh, of both movies uh, featuring Cynthia Rothrock and uh, you know both martial arts direct-to-video movies that came out in 1991. They both came out the same year. Uh, That's Mar- wild. Martial Law one and two, and uh, I'm very excited to uh, check these movies out. I bought the Blu-ray a while ago and uh, haven't gotten around to it. And I'm assuming you picked this because you also got the Blu-ray at some point. Correct, yeah. And we've been, you know, you're about to plug our Michelle Yeoh podcast. We've been on a Hong Kong action movie martial arts kick. And I was like, let's let's do more of that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the meantime, we are going through every one of Michelle Yeoh's movies for the complete works. And uh, this week, we released our episode on Butterfly and Sword, uh, which is a wuxia movie featuring Michelle Yeoh, Tony Leung, and Donnie Yen. It's a wild time. Uh, Laura, have you seen Butterfly and Sword? I have not. Most people have not. <laughs> I, I am not surprised. Are you are you a Michelle Yeoh fan at all? As far as uh, the earlier stuff goes, you know I'm, sure, I'm sure in the newer stuff you've probably I, I seen. I haven't even watched everything everywhere all at once. Oh, I know. Man. I'm really far gotta behind. Get, I gotta, gotta catch that. up. I know. I'm um, I'm gonna get there eventually. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So yeah, watch everything everywhere all at once, and then if you feel like it, go back and watch Butterfly and Sword. It's on YouTube. It's it's available for free. Oh, love that. <laughs> um, but there you go. All right, Laura. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. Thanks, friends. Yes. All right. That's the end of this week's episode of Mike and Mike. We will see you on the other side. Yeah.